Hi, this is Dr. Alicia Armitstead. I am a chiropractor who specializes in nutrition using a technique called muscle testing. I'm here today to talk to you about viruses. Viruses are microscopic, generally smaller than bacteria. They are a strand of DNA or RNA with a protein shell that lack the capacity to thrive and reproduce outside of something living. It could be a plant, animal, human, or bacteria. Yes, viruses can live inside bacteria, anything alive that it can use to replicate itself. So viruses aren't actually classified as being alive themselves since they don't actually have a cell. There's no cell membrane, there's no metabolism going on, there's no respiration. They can't replicate outside of a living cell. Viruses are really a creepy half-life strand of DNA or RNA looking for a cell to invade. Viruses can be very contagious because they need to invade. Besides the current coronavirus pandemic, there was also the 2014 outbreak of Ebola in West Africa and the 2009 swine flu pandemic. So microscopic, how small are they? With a diameter of 220 nanometers, the measles virus is about eight times smaller than E. coli bacteria. At 45 nanometers, the hepatitis virus is about 40 times smaller than E. coli. But how big is a nanometer? Let's take a grain of salt, just one grain, and compare it to the polio virus. The polio virus is 30 nanometers across. It's about 10,000 times smaller than one grain of salt. Once inside a body, a virus attaches to a cell, goes into the cell, and releases their DNA. They use their DNA to then tell the cell to stop doing what it is doing and instead make more viruses. They literally hijack the cell to make more of itself. Once the cell makes thousands of viruses, it ruptures and dies, while the viruses spread to other cells. Certain viruses can be highly contagious. For example, with a full-blown infection of the common cold, one sneeze emits 20,000 droplets containing rhinoviruses. Touching those droplets and then touching your face is all it takes for a cold to spread. Different viruses attack different cells in your body. Some viruses attack your liver, other viruses attack your blood, while other viruses, like the coronavirus, attack the lungs. Viruses have two ways of living in the body. They have two life cycles, the lytic cycle and the lysogenic cycle. The lytic cycle is where the virus is focused on reproduction. Like I already explained, this is where the virus invades a cell, inserts its DNA, and creates thousands of copies of itself until the cell bursts, and then each new viral strand invades new cells replicating the process. The lysogenic cycle is where the virus remains dormant within its host cell. The virus may remain dormant for years. Not all viruses are eradicated from the body. Herpes and chickenpox are good examples. Herpes outbreaks come and go throughout a lifetime. People with herpes know that lack of sleep, stress, and a low immune system can all be triggers for an outbreak. And chickenpox can cause shingles later in life when the dormant virus reactivates. Epstein-Barr virus is known to cause mono that stays in your body too. To get them to not activate again, you want to keep a healthy immune system so that if it does start acting up, 
your healthy immune system can fight it without you getting symptoms. Viruses don't stand a chance against a healthy body. Our bodies fight off invading organisms, including viruses, all the time. Our first line of defense is the skin, mucus in the nose and airways, and stomach acid. If we inhale a virus, mucus traps it and tries to expel it. If it is swallowed, stomach acid may kill it. If the virus gets past the first line of defense, the innate immune system comes into play. White blood cells, known as phagocytes, wage war and release interferon to protect cells. Interferon is a protein secreted by white blood cells to stimulate the infected cells and those nearby to produce other proteins that prevent the virus from replicating within them. Further production of the virus is thereby inhibited and the infection slows down. Interferons can also combat bacterial and parasitic infections. If they cannot destroy the invading force, the phagocytes call the lymphocytes into play. Our lymphocytes, known as T-cells and B-cells, retain a memory of any previous infection that was serious enough to bring them into battle. Antibodies were formed, and the body knows how to fight any infection it recognizes. But viruses can mutate, sometimes so much that the body cannot recognize them as similar infection that it was fought in the past. Antiviral medications do not directly kill the virus. They trap it within the cell, keeping it from reproducing. The only catch is that the antiviral has to be taken within 48 hours of symptom onset, or it doesn't work. Antibiotics don't kill viruses. They kill bacteria. And they kill good bacteria as well as bad bacteria. But the good bacteria is what we need to keep our gut in balance. Taking antibiotics when you have a viral infection can cause an immediate overgrowth of candida, giving the immune system an additional system-wide infection to deal with when it needs all its resources to fight a viral infection. Conventional Western medicine treatment is medications for symptoms, medication to bring the fever down, medication to suppress the cough, medication to breathe easier, but no medications have ever been developed to kill the virus itself. But don't panic. Viruses can only affect us if we have a weak immune system. For the most part, a strong, healthy body, viruses come in and viruses go out, creating very little damage. Having a strong immune system is dependent on a healthy, nutrient-dense diet and a healthy lifestyle of exercise and good sleep. The less stress, the better for mind and body health and a body void of as many toxins as possible. We live and breathe this concept at Healing Arts. We live the lifestyle, we eat healthy, and take our supplements for optimal health. If you feel like you take pretty good care of yourself, yet something is off, maybe you're tired even though you sleep well, maybe your hair is thinning for no reason, maybe you can't lose weight even though you are watching what you eat and exercising, you could have a hidden virus. And I say hidden because a lot of the time my patients are unaware of it. They don't come in feeling as if they have an actual infection, but they know something is off. This is where muscle testing shines because we can pick up on the energy of viruses very quickly and without being invasive. We then muscle test for what specific supplements are needed and make suggestions on lifestyle changes to help boost the immune system and kill viruses. This is why a designed clinical nutrition program is so important to health. I have helped a lot of thyroid issues by handling viruses. Also, a lot of chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia patients can be helped by handling viruses.
In my office, rule number one is anything can cause anything and just stay open and see what the biofeedback is from the body with the muscle testing. If you have a thyroid autoimmune disease, also known as Hashimoto's, know that it is because of a latent Epstein-Barr virus in the body. Epstein-Barr virus, also known as EBV, causes what is known as mono, usually in college kids, but never really goes away. Using muscle testing, I pick up on thyroid weaknesses due to Epstein-Barr virus energy a lot in my office, even without patients knowing that there is a thyroid issue. It is because we are picking up on it before it becomes an actual problem. Western medicine has done a lot of studies saying that the majority of Hashimoto's patients have Epstein-Barr antibodies, so there might be a correlation. And I will tell you that there definitely is from what I see in the office. Anthony Williams is a medical medium who has written a fantastic book on this topic called Thyroid Healing. I highly suggest it for anyone who wants to heal their thyroid. The autoimmune theory proposes that a person's immune system becomes confused and starts attacking a part of the body. In the case of Hashimoto's, patients are told that the immune system mysteriously produces antibodies that target and damage the thyroid gland as though it was a foreign presence. This is not true. The body never attacks itself. It goes only after pathogens. Antibodies are signs that there's a pathogen in the body that the immune system is putting all its energy into fighting off. This process of a pathogen invading cell and the body working to fight it off creates inflammation. However, the pathogens that cause this physical response are usually undetectable to doctors. By the time a virus has started to cause chronic illness in a patient, it has usually burrowed itself so deep into the person's organs that the virus doesn't show up on blood tests. So it appears to be a bodily malfunction and gets labeled as autoimmune. When we look at Epstein-Barr virus, there are three stages. In the first stage, Epstein-Barr virus lives mostly dormant in the bloodstream, quietly building its numbers. In stage two, the Epstein-Barr springs to life and causes mono, meanwhile seeking out a home in the infected person's organs, usually the spleen or the liver, at which point it may go back into being dormant. Stages 1 and 2 can each last for weeks, months, or years, and a person may be completely unaware that he or she even has the virus. The only symptoms may be a brief and mild scratchy throat with some tiredness. What I've learned from Anthony Williams is that in stage 3, the virus becomes highly active and destructive. It now takes up residence in the thyroid. The virus picks the thyroid because it's a star of the endocrine system. The thyroid functions much like a data center for the body, keeping the body in homeostasis. When Epstein-Barr enters the scene, this ideal functioning gets thrown off, which in turn throws off the entire endocrine system. To compensate and power the body, the adrenal glands pump out excess adrenaline, which is one of Epstein-Barr's favorite foods. The virus feasts on the adrenaline in order to get stronger, multiply, and go after its ultimate target, the nervous system. So in essence, thyroid illness can be a precursor to Epstein-Barr-caused neurological conditions such as chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and multiple sclerosis, which is all the more reason why if you're struggling with a thyroid issue, you want to stop Epstein-Barr before it can develop into something worse. 
While all of this viral activity is happening in the thyroid, you may be highly aware that there is something amiss, even if you have received a thyroid-related diagnosis, or maybe you haven't, but something's out of balance. That's because, as in stage 1 and 2 of Epstein-Barr, the symptoms of stage 3, when the virus enters the thyroid, can be either subtle or overwhelming. Much of this has to do with what strain of Epstein-Barr you happen to have. There are over 60 varieties of it, some of them slow-moving and mild, others accelerated and aggressive. Once in the thyroid, Epstein-Barr drills actively and deeply into the gland's tissue over time, scarring it and impeding its function. In this weakened state, the thyroid can become less effective at producing its thyroid hormones. The name for this condition is hypothyroidism also known as underactive thyroid or low thyroid. It's a mild, early stage of Hashimoto's. Hypothyroidism can cause body temperature fluctuations, hair loss, fatigue, and dry skin. But what about the other symptoms typically associated with low thyroid hormone levels? They aren't due to a low thyroid. They're symptoms of the Epstein-Barr that's infecting the thyroid aches and pains, muscle weaknesses, memory issues, mood changes, and more. These are viral symptoms, not a result of hypothyroidism. Mysterious weight gain is a common symptom that leaves many people beyond frustrated. You're watching what you eat, you're exercising regularly, and the number on the scale keeps going up. You might have heard that this is a result of the hypothyroid, that you have an underactive thyroid that's failing to produce enough hormones to keep your weight in check. But that's not how it works. What's really happening is that back when Epstein-Barr was in stage 2 and hiding out in your liver, it weakened the organ and burdened it to the point of creating a sluggish liver. Then, even after the virus moved on to the thyroid, some Epstein-Barr cells remained in the liver, where they continued to cause trouble. Plus, Epstein-Barr's presence in the body results in the ongoing presence of viral byproducts, dead virus cells, and neurotoxins in the system that give the liver and lymphatic system continuous purifying work to do, so they keep getting strained. All of that and the adrenal glands that are overcompensating for the underactive thyroid flood the liver with excess adrenaline, giving it even more of a toxic load. It's the resulting overburdened, sluggish liver and lymphatic system that are behind a hypothyroid patient's tendency to have difficulty losing weight or to gain pounds without control. So both the hypothyroid and the weight gain are caused by the virus. It's not the hypothyroid itself causing the weight gain. A lot of the times I explain to my patients that to lose weight, we need to support the liver, and that's why. When Epstein-Barr targets the thyroid gland, the immune system reacts in full force, and the result is inflammation. Inflammation is the body's natural response to invasion or injury. Have you ever gotten a splinter and the skin around it got red, hot, and puffy? That's the body's response to inflammation to a foreign object that's causing cell damage. The same goes for the thyroid. If Epstein-Barr enters your thyroid tissue, Your immune system immediately knows and your immune system goes after it, causing the gland to become inflamed. This can come with a feeling of a sore throat, pressure in the throat, or a funny feeling in your neck. Inflammation like this could happen in any organ due to any pathogen, 
or heavy metal or heavy chemical. Toxins cause inflammation. One of my favorite things to give to patients to help them with a thyroid issue is iodine. Iodine is known to help the thyroid, but it's not because of its nutrition for the thyroid. It works because it's actually an antiseptic that kills viruses and bacteria. The reason there's confusion in this area is that when iodine reaches the thyroid, it kills off virus cells at an accelerated rate, which can in turn temporarily elevate inflammation. Those patients for whom Epstein-Barr is only causing a mild hypothyroid can often do well on iodine, which is beneficial because it can help tame the virus before it advances to the point of causing Hashimoto's. On the other hand, too much iodine at once for someone with a high level of Epstein-Barr infection of the thyroid can be overwhelming because it starts killing off too many virus cells at once and the inflammatory response can be quite high and uncomfortable. This type of response is called a die-off reaction, or a Herxheimer reaction. It occurs when any immune challenge, virus, bacteria, fungus, or parasite are being killed too fast. When these things die, toxins are released, literally. Pus and mucus builds up on the cellular level, and the body then releases pro-inflammatory proteins, known as cytokines, in response. While some cytokine activity bolsters the immune system to fight infections, too many cytokines can have adverse reactions. An overabundance of cytokines in the body leads to pain, fatigue, a suppressed immune system, skin rashes, and brain fog. Often it occurs when you begin a new treatment, but it can also happen at different points throughout treatment. This inflammation is often masked for an autoimmune response. Hashimoto's is that diagnosis. It's the autoimmune reaction of the thyroid. The popular concern is that the iodine causes an overproduction of thyroid hormones that the body sees as foreign invaders, which prompts the immune system to attack the thyroid. This theory is incorrect. It leaves out the most important factor of all, the Hashimoto's is the result of a viral infection. One of the keys for people with hypothyroidism is to avoid being completely deficient in iodine. Avoiding iodine deficiency can also be helpful in preventing breast cancer, too. This doesn't mean that you have to go on iodine supplementation. A lot of the times I suggest getting iodine from foods such as in sea vegetables, dulce, kelp, bladder rack. In thinking about helping viruses with diet, I think of preventing a herpes outbreak. It really does make a difference in avoiding foods high in amino acid arginine. Higher levels of arginine are found in foods such as chocolate and many types of nuts. Stress, coffee, well, caffeine, and red wine are also triggers. HPV is extremely common, and my patients who come in diagnosed with it always feel shame, as if they're the only ones, I guess because it's a sexually transmitted disease. But I want you guys to know that, unfortunately, there are 79 million Americans who have it too. There are many different types of HPV. Some types can cause health problems, such as genital warts and cancers. Sometimes they don't cause problems. There's currently no cure for an existing HPV infection. Our goal, just like with all the other viruses, is to help boost the immune system so the body takes care of it. 
I see it all the time in my office how most people with HPV in my office, after three months on a program, get retested and don't have the HPV anymore. Whether it's HPV, Epstein-Barr, or any other virus, with the right nutrition and healthy lifestyle, the immune system is strong and the body can heal itself. I'll be back again next week to talk about Candida.